The word of the Lord reads, You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you are angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation, and I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Well, this morning we're going to be learning a little bit about singing from the prophet Isaiah. Uh, anybody here like to sing? Nobody. Okay, a few people. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad that we had such a good morning of singing because uh, this way we can use this really just to encourage something that's already being done well, right? Uh, It's not corrective, but a way to encourage us about the way that we ought to be thinking about singing. Uh, And this is probably just a really good opportunity to thank uh, Malachi as he comes in uh, for all of the work that he puts in to help make sure that our services have songs and scriptures that help to prepare our hearts for the text of scripture that we're going to be preaching. From uh, Mal just does an excellent job, and I'm so grateful for the band for all the hours that they put into helping uh, prepare us for worship. So let's just give those guys a hand, thanking them for all that they do. A lot of work, a lot of hours. We're grateful for you guys. Uh, thank you for your work. Um, but this morning uh, we're going to be thinking a lot about singing, and one of my favorite hymns, "In Christ Alone," actually made it into the news on a number of national stations in 2013. Because the PCUSA decided not to place it in their hymn. Now, here's how that that kind of fell out. Uh, They basically asked if they could make one small change to this song to make it better fit their hymnal. Uh, They wanted to change the line, The wrath of God is satisfied to the love of God is magnified. Both good lines, but they felt like the wrath of God being satisfied is actually just um, maybe not really central to the meaning of the cross. Uh, They said that the cross is not really an instrument of wrath. And really the cross isn't ultimately about the satisfaction of the wrath of God, which kind of makes God come off as sounding sort of like a bully. In fact, they said that uh, the chairman of the, the committee actually said that when they thought about this line, they were even more concerned that if they were to include it, that it would have negative effects on the hymnal's ability to form the faith of future generations. Now just hear what that means. They thought that singing about Jesus satisfying God's just anger and wrath stifled music and discipleship. Well, uh, this morning, uh, I'm not Marty McFly, but we're going to go back to the future 
looking at the Jesus series in Isaiah 12, where we are going to get some singing lessons from Isaiah himself as he is in the new creations, the new heavens and the new earth, with this vision that's been given to him for the people of God. Their future is incredibly bright. And I can't help but think, as we are looking at these verses that we just read this morning, that Isaiah would say that removing God's satisfied anger would actually be what would stifle music discipleship and evangelism. He would say that it's the satisfaction of the wrath of God that actually ought to encourage and mold disciples and also draw in the nations to worship God. Now the repeated line uh, that you'll notice in Isaiah 12, 1 and 4, in that day, actually is helping to set the context of this chapter of Isaiah 12 in the, the whole placement of Isaiah 11 that we just left. You remember there that there was a grand future reality that Isaiah promised Judah in Isaiah 11 where a righteous, spirit-appointed Davidic king would come and restore creation and gather the nations under the banner of his salvation. So it's at that day that we find this text taking place. This looks so much like the new heavens and new earth that we read about in Revelations 21-24. to But hang with me. Isaiah 12 actually pictures the climactic response of the people of God whom he has saved beginning with one guy singing in the first two verses then spreading to the congregation in verses three to five before erupting into loud singing in verse six where God himself shows up this is a glorious text and I'm excited about looking at it but if you're taking notes here's our main point that you can go ahead and write down this is our main point we'll see that the song of God's people begins with propitiation It's a big word. We put it up there. It begins with propitiation, and it climaxes in God's presence. Well, we see this first in our first couple of verses where salvation moves the believer to sing. Salvation moves the believer to sing. Now, if you want to understand this text, uh, the pronouns are very important They give us a key for understanding these verses. So, as I said before, these two first verses, you'll notice use you, I, me, and my. They're all singular, describing a singular man's future response to being delivered by the Messiah after he has restored all things. And this is what Isaiah says to him. In verse 1, he says this, You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for you were angry with me. Your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Now, the Lord in all caps here, of course, is God's covenantal name. It tells us that God's covenantal name, Yahweh, is behind this. That God who committed to a people, who put His name on them, He claimed them as His own. And here, this author, He is praising God for keeping His covenant and saving Him as He said He would. Now, here's what I find fascinating, though. Since chapter 7, you'll remember that Isaiah has promised Judah a spirit-anointed king or Messiah who would deliver them from Israel, from Syria, and from Assyria. 
Now, Isaiah doesn't tell us who this guy is that's speaking in the first two verses, but I would actually understand him to be any saved man who's gathered under, the, under God's banner on that last day when God has restored all things. This is that song that is erupting uh, by that, uh, all of those individuals in their own independent hearts as they are gathered under Christ. See, God would deliver him from all kinds of things, this man that is singing the praises of God. But on the last day of the current state of affairs, and the first day of forever, this guy isn't, he isn't thankful for salvation from the nations. No, take note that what he's grateful for. He explains, you were angry with me. Your anger turned away that you might comfort me. See, I believe this is what the banner of the cross of Christ was raised in Isaiah 11 signals. Salvation from the wrath of God by Jesus raised up on a cross for you and me. You know, in R.C. Sproul's uh, little book entitled Saved from What? He spends 128 pages answering that very question. What has the Christian been saved from? Now, for those of us who would rather him just get to the point, he says this very shortly, we have been saved by God from God. We have been saved by God from God. That is the heartbeat of the gospel. And Isaiah, you'll remember, he actually has already prepared us for this. And because we've been going straight through Isaiah, we can see it. So for the last chapters between 7 and 11, God has been telling us about all the enemies that would come against this individual. But do you remember that They all begin before that with an episode in Isaiah 6 where Isaiah himself comes into the very presence of God in his throne room. And as he comes before him on that day, he is not comforted by the presence of God. Instead, we find in verse 6-5, this prophet Isaiah immediately realized that his own greatest threat and danger was his sin before a holy God saying, Woe is me, for I am lost For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my my eyes have seen the King, the Lord. In that moment, he's not thinking to himself, things are good, we're good, it's great that God's here, I feel so much better now. No, in this moment, he says, woe is me. Now we've said before, woe. Woe is a word that actually signals the idea of a funeral. So as Isaiah is coming before this image of God in his presence his immediate feeling is I am dead this is not good for me this is dead for me this is not life giving this is dead initiating I am in trouble before the presence of God so you have to be asking yourself what is it that's changed between chapter 6 and chapter 11 well it's that the Messiah has come The Messiah has come and He has changed what it means for these people to come into the presence of a holy God. See, the Messiah of Isaiah 11 signals a new day for sinners saved by grace. God's anger has melted into comfort. And notice the heart of change in this man. Not only has God's disposition changed, but the heart of this man that comes before God has changed. He says in verse 2 that, Behold, catch this, behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid for the Lord God. He is my strength and my song and He has become my salvation. Those are the words on the lips of this man who has come before God. Those were not the lips, the words on the lips of this man in verses 7 to 10, but in 11, he has a new song. Did you notice that he begins and ends 
Those verses with the refrain in verse 2, God is my salvation. See, on this day, God's disposition toward the sinner and the sinner's disposition towards God has changed radically. God's man doesn't lean into or fear the rulers who struck him anymore, but fully fears and trusts God who is his strength and his song and has become his salvation. The fear of the Lord, hear me, the fear of the Lord cast out fear and sends this man singing. I'm wondering if in this moment he just broke out into, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." As he realized who God was and who he was and the salvation that had been brought to him. Now, don't miss this. God is his strength and his song and has become his salvation. In other words, this guy's confidence in song is that he has been saved from God, by God, and I would add, to God. He now gets God because of what God has done. See, Isaiah says God's anger melting into mercy gave this guy something to sing about. Now, if you're wondering what this idea of the anger of God being turned away uh, is really pointing to, well, in the New, Terst- in the New Testament, uh, they actually use a really big $10 word to describe it. It's called propitiation. Really big word. One of the most beautiful words in the Bible. And it describes the way that Jesus not only turned back the anger of God, but he satisfied it forever for those who are in Christ. Now, this is a glorious word for sinners. See, all of us have broken God's just commands. We are guilty. We deserve God's just wrath. Now, I know that you might be thinking to yourself, well, is sin really that bad? And if it really is that bad, isn't God like really bigger than my sin? And does that really have to make a big deal to him? Well, the Bible, its answer is yes. Sin is a big deal. It's big in comparison to the size of the God that we have sinned against. But sin separated us, we are told, from God's presence. It ushered death into the world, and it deserves God's just wrath. Now, here's the deal that the Bible says. If God lets off sinners without punishment, he's not just anymore, and you can't trust him. If he just lets sin go on and run a havoc without dealing with it, then God is not good, or he is not powerful enough to change things. But Romans 3 says this, and this is good news. Because God is both just and merciful, He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, Christ meaning Messiah, to bear the penalty of our sin against God on the cross. So that God is both just and the justifier. That's Romans 3. See, propitiation speaks of how God absorbed or assuaged the wrath of God and His anger that you and me deserved. He satisfied it fully at the cross. And don't miss this. Isaiah would say that, that that anger being turned away is not something that you remove from a song. It's the heartbeat of a song. See, Isaiah would say that's something to sing about today, on the last day, and forever. And don't miss this. Isaiah says the idea of God's wrath being satisfied, it does not stifle worship, it ignites it. If we really want our hearts to get ready to praise God, then we need to really tap into more fully the nature of what the cross means for me and you. And what every Christian needs to get ready to sing to God is actually a better grasp of the reality that God isn't angry with us anymore in Christ. See, remove the wrath of God and you remove the heartbeat of the gospel. Lose that and you're going to lose your song. See, singing, it actually is a process that moves It moves from our 
hearts rehearsing redemption to lips that rejoice. We rehearse and then we rejoice. We, we think more about what God has done. We meditate more on who God is until it moves our lips to praise. If we aren't praising Him, then it says something about our hearts rehearsing of Him. We have not properly rehearsed the deeds that God has done for you or me. We have not actually understood what it means for us. If we are not ready to sing, our hearts are not ready to understand what God has done. We need more of God. We need more of His Word. Our rejoicing in redemption will always be proportional to the greatness of the rescue that we sense in our soul. Just think about this. See, I think... There's a danger that our rejoicing will fade if we lose sight of this. And you might be saying, well, what does a, a fading rejoicing look like? Well, you know, I believe our rejoicing fades when maybe our reconciled relationship with God becomes less important than any other relationship that we have. Or when we hide the reality of God's wrath because Ultimately, in our hearts, it's not that we really care about others, but we don't truly believe that He is good and just in His anger. And so we hide God because we don't really trust God. Or when we imagine that we don't truly deserve God's wrath. You know, we're we're pretty good. We we don't really deserve that wrath. And so I I don't really want to rehearse the reality of what God has done in my soul I'm going to hide that because of what it says about me. Or, or maybe when we believe that we might be able to deliver ourselves apart from the work of Christ. Or when we are driven by longings for anything more than Him. We start to drift. And when we drift away from embracing Jesus, enduring the infinite just wrath of God for you and me as our great sacrificial Lamb, our rejoicing and singing will fade. See, that's why we need to embrace the King who is also the Lamb. And so that we will move our hearts to song. Now I'm wondering, could it be that the lack of joy that each of us sometimes sense or feel in singing goes deeper than the song choice? You ever wondered about that? I mean, I'm so quick to think that the reason that I can't sing is because it's not my favorite song getting played. But could it be that God is doing something more in our music? I mean, not that song choice is unimportant. We think it's very important. But the band's job, it it isn't ultimately, I don't believe, to conjure up excitement about God so that we feel like singing. We should come locked and loaded for that. We should love God when we come. The, The band's job is actually, I believe, to release a congregation of individuals who sense more and more the greatness of our just God, who is justified and saved sinners by grace and grace alone through Christ and Christ alone. Could it be that just maybe when you show up on Sunday, you're expecting us to rehearse for you in five minutes what you should have been rehearsing for five days. See, good music cannot create worship where worship is not. But just notice how in verses 3-5, to this individual experience of propitiation, God's anger being satisfied, leads to a corporate response of the lips of God's people. Second, you'll see that salvation moves a congregation to sing the gospel and bring it to the nations. This is in verses 3 to 5. Now, I, this is where I get in the Bible, and sometimes I'm like, I wish they just had, like, a Mississippi version. You know they have, like, different versions, like an Ebonics version of the Bible? I wish they had, like, a Mississippi version. 
Uh, the reason is, is because they have this beautiful invention that I think is so like, wise and, and, and intelligent. Uh, whenever you have a second person plural, uh, they say, y'all. You know what it usually says? You. You can be singular, you can be plural, but here in this text, it's plural, and you don't see it shift because he's, always, he's already been using you, but here he is actually moving to a congregation of people, which it said y'all. But notice what he says here in verse 3. He says, in that day, in that day, or the last day that we've been talking about, he says, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. This is really a glorious image that we see all over the the Bible. We know that the great desire of the human heart is God. And that's why a a parched desert, I think, creates a perfect image of the human heart that has been separated from God. We are thirsty for God. We pant after God. Or as Psalm 42, 1-2 says, As a deer pants for living streams, so pants my soul for you, O Lord. It's you that I desire. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Isn't that the longing of the soul? I believe it is. might be misdirected in a lot of ways. But ultimately, I believe the soul of man desires God. But notice Isaiah 12.3. He says, today, on this day, all of those longings, something different has happened, something has changed. Today's the day that the spiritually dehydrated people of God come and set their roots next to the fountains of living waters. With joy, with joy you will draw water. You will heap it up from the wells of salvation. You don't have to settle for the thimble of water anymore. I have brought you the waters of living life. The water restrictions are lifted. And God's people come and drink in the salvation of God to their fill. Of course, when Jesus arrived, you'll remember that Jesus himself said that he's the only place to go for people who are thirsty for God and his salvation. In John 7, 37-38, he says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. In other words, Jesus so floods the soul of the saved that they actually become a fountain of life and blessing for others by virtue of their being born again and being full of the Holy Spirit. But catch this. The experience of salvation becomes a congregational experience in verse 4. He says, And you all, you all will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that His name is exalted. Did you see that? God's people begin with a declaration of who God is by rehearsing what God has done. That's really theology. They're looking at their Bibles. They're studying God in their Bibles. That's how we know about God and know God. And as they rehearse His deeds, it moves them. It moves them to praise. See, God's name here that they are rehearsing, it points to all that He is. Because worship begins with their Bibles and rehearsing with what God has done. God is exalted and made much of. Now there seems to be actually in verse 5 an escalation though. In other words, they're singing, but I mean they're talking about what God has done, but then there's an escalation. It seems in verse 5 that their theology, as they are rehearsing it, actually works them up into doxology. 
In other words, their proclamation moves them into exaltation. They get excited about God and sing to Him. Verse 5 says, sing praises to the Lord, for He has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. See, the proclamation of who God is leads God's people to sing praises to God together. I believe Isaiah describes a singing that we already experience every Sunday in part, just not as fully as we will in the future. We have already seen Christ, and so we together come together to sing praises about the salvation that has been brought to us in Him. Now, I see a couple of things here that I think are important to take note of application-wise. First, did you notice that God's deeds inspire the songs God's people sing? God's deeds inspire the songs that God's people sing. In other words, they don't just sing God is good, good, good all the time, right? And think that that's sufficient. Not that God is not good and not that He is not good all the time. But He says, we need to really start to rehearse what it is specifically that we know about God that He has done in history that shows us who He is so that we truly understand just how good this God is. We're not just trying to get emotional for emotion's sake. This is why we preach expositionally here, by the way. We mostly go through, book by book, through the Bible, exposing the main point of the text of each passage and making that the main point of our messages. And the reason that we do that is because we believe that our doctrine leads to praise, if we understand God rightly. So we can sing that God is good all the time, but we want to be more specific than that. And that's why we are rehearsing the specific deeds of God in Scripture. We preach, I believe, like Jesus, Paul, Peter, and others in the Bible do, about how all the Bible climaxes and culminates in Christ. The Messiah whose name is above every name. The name before which every knee will bow and every tongue confess that He is Lord. That's where worship goes in the Scriptures. But also, another thing that I think we see here application-wise is that this is why we sing theologically true songs. See, this is so important. I can't tell you how many times I've caught my sons on Sunday afternoon at home singing the songs that we just sang at church on Sunday. And maybe that's been you too. You've sung a song that you've heard. uh, You've gone home. It continues to resonate in your soul and, and it's taught you much about God. You know, sometimes songs stick better than sermons do, don't they? And Paul says songs are actually part of the teaching ministry of our church. In Colossians 3.16, this is what he says about singing. Did you know this? He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Okay, teaching. And he says, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. In other words, the songs that we sing really should be teaching our hearts big truths about God. They should be reminding us about who God is. Do you see it? Music helps make disciples. Good disciples understand Jesus is the King who laid down His life for the church and called His disciples to do the same. As we sing about these things, I believe that it's transformative. God's Word washes over us. So when we gather to sing on Sundays... The most important instrument in this building, please hear me, is your voice. There is no more important instrument in this building than your voice. It's not the guitar. It's not the piano. It's not all those like 12 pedals that Kevin keeps back on his bass guitar. It's our voices. 
That's what ignites worship. Our, our voices should be the thing that, <coughs> that are meant to encourage one another to the glory of God. Let me just ask you this. When you were singing on Sunday mornings, when you were just singing so well just, just moments ago, were you thinking more about how much you liked the song or your voice? Or are you thinking about how your singing is actually helping to make a disciple of the person next to you, stirring them up towards love and good deeds? Now, my hope is that it's the latter. That when we sing, we sing not because we have great voices. We don't sing because, like, oh, that's the right song that I'm willing to join in on. It's because we see the people around us and we say, they need to hear the gospel. I've come here this morning to sing the gospel for them. Singing isn't merely about discipleship either, though. Did you notice that it's also in verses 4 and 5 about evangelism? Uh, Notice verse 4 says, make his deeds known among the nations. And then verse 5, let this be made known throughout the earth. Take note, singing is evangelistic. Have you thought about this? Let me just ask you, when you sing, are you singing loudly or softly according to your preference of the song sung? Or are you singing like the eternal destiny? of those around you depend on it. Oh God, I just pray that you would open our mouths to sing as though the eternal destiny of those around us depend on it. You know, I would love for us to be better and better a singing church that is known to sing. Why do we love to sing? Not because we love great music we do, but because we love our great God. And we want to see sinners saved. Now I said, I think there will be, uh, last week I, I told you, um, and some of you I lost on this, but I told you that I thought that there will be rap and country music in heaven. Well, catch this. This week it seems like in verse 6 that there's also going to be screamo. Do y'all know what screamo is? It's basically scream singing, shout singing. That's what we find in verse 6. Actually, probably not because this seems to be intelligible. But we'll see here, the groom in verse 6 returns for his bride, Right? Now, God's people in this verse are calling upon the name of the Lord in verse 4. And in verse 6, they actually get what they asked for. Uh, Notice in verse 6 what it says. This is a glorious verse. It says, Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion. For great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Israel. Now, so far, Isaiah has used singular masculine and plural masculine verbs. He spoke to a guy and then to a group, but here he actually shifts to the singular feminine verb when he says, shout and sing for joy. They're both singular and feminine. And they're addressed to the inhabitant of Zion, that people of God who are being personified as uh, one woman. I love what Alec Moyer says here. He says, this recalls how Miriam, Miriam back in the book of Exodus, took the lead in the triumphant song in Exodus 15.20 after God redeemed his people. See, Zion here is personified as an exultant exultant woman. The people of God in their oneness. And, and, And you'll remember if you read through the Bible that there really are a lot of places that the Bible often pictures Israel as a woman. Unfortunately, a lot of those pictures aren't that great because they view her as an adulterous woman, and adultery pictures idolatry. You'll remember that in Jeremiah 2.2, the prophet speaks 
for God. And, and as he speaks, God laments over Judah as they await the destruction of Babylon for their sins. And God says, I remember the devotion of your youth. Your love as a bride. You see it? He, he says the, the love that I have for you, the, the best human picture and illustration that I can give for you of that love, the intensity of that love, is the love that a young groom has for his young bride. There, there, there's an intense affection and love for the groom, for the bride. And he says, that is a small picture of the way that I remember you. And that's what makes him sad. And then in Hosea, you remember that God had the prophet Mary Gomer. Gomer, the, the prostitute. And, and he has himself committed to her, though she is unfaithful to him, is a picture, a living illustration of the infidelity of God's people to him. Usually a, a bad image, but not here though. See, this is our future new day of Isaiah 11, when God brings the redemption of his people to its consummation. When the kids play peekaboo with the cobra. And God has drawn people from every tribe and tongue to His throne, and His glory fills the earth as the waters cover the sea. This is a new and different day. But don't miss this. I believe that this is the same day that Apostle John sees in Revelation 21.2. Think, John sees the day that Isaiah saw in Isaiah 12. And listen to what he says in Revelation 12.2. He says, that he sees the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as what? A bride, adorned for her husband. And then in verse 3 he says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them as their God. And then in verse 6, if you skip over to there, notice that it says, And he said to John, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. This is Christ. The beginning and the end. And catch this. Does this sound familiar? To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. You will drink to the full on this day. Sound like Isaiah? Now you might be asking, I don't understand. Like how do we jump from a propitiation like image of God's anger being turned away to a wedding? Do those things really go together? Don't miss this. I love how Revelation 21.9, John sort of ties these together. Look what he says. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Did you catch that? The wife of the Lamb. That's, I think, an important picture. Do you see it? There's a reason why we are invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. Now, I don't mean to disappoint, but it's not because Lamb is on the menu. That's not what the marriage feast of the Lamb is about. No, the Lamb is the groom. The Lamb is the one whom the bride is marrying. He is the great husband to the church. And see here, the Lamb is the groom who laid down his life for his bride, the church. Now Israel, in the Old Testament, sacrificed lambs on the Day of Atonement to satisfy God's wrath. And they had to do this every year. It never stopped because God was never fully satisfied. But Jesus willingly sacrificed his life as our Easter Lamb. To bring God back into our midst for our good, fully satisfying the wrath of God once for all and forever. Why? Because of the great love with which He loved us. And that's what God has done. So catch this. This means that in Christ, we are Jesus' sheep. 
but Jesus is our lamb. In Christ, we are Jesus' sheep, but Jesus is our lamb. See, propitiation means the future wrath of God has been fully satisfied. God's anger for you and for me has been fully, once for all, dealt with in Christ. And by faith, we are the sheep of God who Jesus tells us, no one can snatch them from my white-knuckled grip in John 10. Nobody's getting you out of my grip. And if that's not enough for you, uh, know this, you are also in the hand of God. Now, I don't know about you, but like, I used to have my grandfather, and he would, um, he was like, I was like six, and he was this big army guy who jumped out of planes, and he used to like to walk up to bouncers at clubs and say, what are you doing here? Yeah, he's just trying to pick a fight, right? But the Lord changed him, uh, but he still liked to pick with me, and so he would put something like a piece of candy in his hand, and he'd be like, here you go, you can have it, just take it out. And when I got older, it was like, he'd put a hundred in there, and he'd say, go ahead, just take it out, you can have it if you can just take it. Well, can you imagine like how hard that was for a six-year-old to try to pry his you know, grandfather's hand open to get to that $100 bill? Well, just imagine this, that God comes and Christ comes and Christ puts you in his hand and that God puts him in your hand, his hand and you've got God the Father and God the Son double clutching you and the Spirit clutching you from the inside. And he says, I dare anybody to try to take you out of my hand. What's the picture there? That those who have truly put their faith in Christ, God will keep you to the end. God will keep you until that last day, whenever he consummates all things, when we ultimately see Christ face to face, and God is eternally and forever in our midst. This is beautiful. The Lion of Judah, he did. He rescued us from sin, death, and the devil. But it was the Lamb that rescued us from God's wrath. And the Lamb on the throne is at the center of the new heavens and the new earth, forever reminding God's people of God's justice and mercy over His people, His bride. That's why we sing and rejoice both now and forever. It is because of the Lamb who was slain. Now maybe you're struggling to sing this morning for one reason or another, and just maybe as you have thought about the way that you have not been rehearsing rightly the deeds of God, and you've not rightly been rejoicing and singing about the deeds of God, you actually feel sadder than when we began. But let me encourage you in a couple of different ways. First, if you're a non-Christian, the reason that you struggle to sing is because you don't have the confidence that Christ has truly satisfied God's wrath for you as your lamb. And so you're not excited about the return of Christ. And you're not interested in singing His praises because you've not experienced the reality of the fact that you have been united with Him by Christ and you have His Spirit within you. So maybe you're an outsider looking in on the worship of God's people this morning and as you look at it, you're disinterested. Well, my prayer for you this morning is that the Holy Spirit would use God's Word either in sermon or song or prayer or even in the reading to awaken you to faith in Christ as your sacrificial lamb who can deliver you from the wrath and anger of God to the loving arms of your Redeemer and King forever. You need that. You need God to do a work in your life so that you actually love the God that you sing about. And if you don't love Him, you won't love to sing about Him. And so maybe the songs are just reminding you of the reality that you need to love God this morning and you don't, and so you need God's help to love God. If that's you this morning, please talk to me. There are many other believers here who would love nothing more than take time this Sunday to share with you how you can put your faith in Christ and change your life forever. But maybe this morning you're discouraged because you feel like you're a miserable Christian. And all of the, the calls to rejoice in the Lord always just actually discourage you because you're not rejoicing and you even wonder if you truly have loved God. 
Maybe this morning you're, you're thinking to yourself, I'm not happy, and this has just reminded me of just how unhappy I am. Could it be this morning that you feel like the already of every day tells you that the not yet Isaiah promises will never come? Maybe singing makes you miserable because you don't feel joyful. Could it be this morning maybe that you're, you're sad in song because of your broken marriage or your failing health, your struggling finances, your loneliness, that constant pain that just doesn't go away? I mean, there are all kinds of things that can distract us from joy and rob us of it. I think that's why we sing songs of lament and confession each week. You know, we don't want to be a church that comes in and speaks only of the victory and not of the discouragements and the real brokenness of this world. See, we need to be reminded that we still need Jesus to come back and set things straight. And we don't want any of you, and maybe you felt like this, I hear this all the time, church folks come in, they visit the church, and they're like, I just don't know if this is a place for me. It seems like everybody has sort of everything together. And I'm like, well, obviously you haven't talked to anybody. Maybe it's just that you're, you're looking at the singing, and you're looking at the faces, and you haven't listened to the hearts. You know, we are a people who have all kinds of brokenness in this body. Now maybe when you're singing, you are being reminded of the brokenness of this body. And that's why we sing laments and songs of confession. It's because we need to, to let people know who come that they can be Christians living in a broken world where everything doesn't always work out the way that they think it should. And we can cry out to God like the psalmists do. Sometimes even saying, God, we might not ever understand this, this side of heaven. And even there, it might be a while. But we can trust that we have a God who has the answers. But let me encourage you this way as well. I believe that music actually serves a couple of functions that we might not be aware of. The first is, I believe that music actually can serve to diagnose our souls. You hear me? Music can actually become a diagnostic tool of God and of the Holy Spirit to actually open up our hearts and reveal where we are before God. I think it's really more than just singing that we're doing as the children of God. I believe that God is doing heart work in it all. I mean, have you ever considered that music diagnoses our hearts and awakens us to why we are so sad? Maybe you've not paid attention to like the fact that you really are sad or the reasons that you're sad, and then you start singing, and all of a sudden you're, you're reminded of the fact that the world is not the way the song says they were not in the new heavens and the new earth yet. And all of a sudden you're thinking to yourself like, man, there's a lot of stuff going on in my life right now that's just not right. And I'm not right. When we look around and we see others singing so hopefully, the Holy Spirit reminds us that our hearts are hoping in the wrong things. And that we need to actually redirect our hearts as we sing. But catch this. Our heart, our songs ought never to just leave us with the diagnosis of our problem. That's why we don't just come and sing songs of lament and confession, right? Like, things are really bad. Amen. Let's go home. That's not what we do, right? No, we say, yeah, the world is broken. We have evidences of brokenness all around us. God has promised that he will restore all things. He has promised that we have access to heavenly, heavenly, uh, heavenly blessing and heavenly places. Spiritual blessing and heavenly places in Ephesians 1. So that we have the resources that we need and the future is incredibly bright. So that our music not only diagnoses what's going on in our hearts, but it also prescribes real solutions for real people. The gospel. It reminds us of the hope that is in Christ. 
So it's a better song than the music that David brought to comfort King Saul that we have as believers. We have the song of Christ, the Lamb who was slain for us, to remind us that our future is bright and it's so much better than the present reality that's all around us. God uses music in our hearts to lift our souls out of the mire of this world to behold our God. And I don't know about you, but I feel like I need the medicine of music centered on Christ, sung by you, my brothers and sisters, week in and week out, at least once a week, and I wish I could have it more. Because it lifts my soul, it encourages me, it edifies me, it gives me hope for the day that is to come. It helps me to face tomorrow. And it moves us from the problem to the provision. And not only that, here's the glorious reality. Hang in with me. We sing with one another day after day until Jesus returns. And once he does that, what we are promised is that in Zephaniah 3, God himself will heal our souls. He will bring the great prescription that we have been longing for when he himself sings over us. See, we're going to close this morning singing a couple of songs that we're hoping will be aimed at healing our souls. So Malachi and the band are going to be coming up as I pray. And then we're going to sing a couple of songs. And my hope is, is that you will let the songs minister to your soul as you minister to one another. Let's pray.